So today, uh, just being our church anniversary, I thought it would be good to speak of the church uh, and just, yeah, just communicate an idea of what God has in mind when it comes to the church. And I think the the most beautiful picture that we have of the church is found in Acts chapter 2. I mean, there are other places that you see the church gathering, but Acts chapter 2 is where it all began. Uh, when the Holy Spirit came down upon the disciples, we see that Peter, he gives, he gives this Christian sermon, and with one sermon, you have 3,000 people giving their lives to Jesus, and they get baptized, and the next thing that you see is there's the church. So from the very beginning, from the early part of Christianity, you see the church being formed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the picture that you have in Acts chapter 2 is quite amazing because it says that all these people, the 3,000 plus people who were there were devoted to God's word. They were also so devoted to one another. They loved one another. They, they liked gathering with each other. They broke bread together. They prayed together. They gathered all their belongings and gave it to those who are in need. They, they continued to, to devote themselves under the teachings of the leaders so that they can further the work of God's kingdom. And day by day, the Bible says numbers were added onto that congregation. And it's amazing because when you think about it, this is when the church did not have a solid building. They didn't have a place, a large place to gather. And so you have to take care of 3,000 plus people. They didn't have an amazing praise band as we do. Uh, They didn't have all the programs that you can pick and choose in order to grow in your faith. They didn't have the technology to to grow in, in their spiritual walk with God. But yet we see that in the church, there's this incredible picture of unity, love, and also maturity. That the early church was really devoted to one another and really devoted to God. And the question becomes how? Like, how is this possible? All that they had was the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And how is it possible for them to form a community in such a way that there's so much love and grace in that community. And so that's what I want us to see in our passage for today because I think every single one of us long for this type of community, long for a place that we can belong, long for a place where there's an abundance of love and care, long for a place where we can trust one another and care for one another and grow with one another. So how does this all happen? Well, in today's passage, we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us one. That's the main idea. If you uh, summarize today's passage in one sentence. It's the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us one. Now, from verse 11, we have a picture of a before and a after. This is not the first time Paul is doing this in the letter of Ephesians. Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Ephesus. And as he's writing this letter, he says, This is who you were before Christ, and this is now who you are in Christ. And so by comparing the before and the after, he's trying to show us how amazing God's grace is. Now, I don't know if you like those shows where there's like extreme home makeovers, right? They would show you like a house that is falling apart, a house that has walls, uh, holes in its walls, and everything is not working. And then these architects and these experts come in, and just in a matter of a couple days, uh, they transform this place into like a new house. 
Or maybe you're more into makeup and hair, and you see those videos online where people are giving you tutorials, and they show you like their, their face without makeup, and then uh, they compare that with their after. Um, I remember one time I was in Korea, South Korea, and I was in this subway station, and there's an advertisement for plastic surgery. And they, they had a picture of before and a picture after. And I was like, that can't be the same person right there. Because, and they're trying to say, like, we can transform you. We're not just going to give you an upgrade. We can make you a whole new person. Um, today's passage reminds us that although doctors are great in makeovers, um, the home experts are great in makeovers, Jesus is the ultimate makeover uh, expert. That he knows how to change us uh, and transform us in a radical way. And so look at verse 11. This is who we were before Christ in our sin. It says, therefore, remember that at one time, You Gentiles in the flesh, meaning those who are non-Jews, most likely all of us here today. Um, Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's a very dark picture. To say that you are separated from Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. To say that you are alienated from the commonwealth, all the blessings and the favor that God gives to his people. To say that you are a stranger to all the great promises that we see in the Old Testament. That's your reality. That's my reality without Jesus in our sin. We are without hope and we are without God in this world. Uh, Earlier on, um, Paul talks about how we are doomed, we live in a dark world, and we are destined to die. That's what he says. In our trespasses and sins, we are basically dead. That's what he says. And so we have this dark picture of who we were, and yet we have this glorious picture of who we are when we begin to believe in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by by the blood of Christ. So here's where I want to just make a quick comment. If you think you're so broken, inside and out, if you feel like you're such a mess that you did too many bad things in your past, if you feel like your past is, is so broken to the point that you have so much baggage and you can't, can't live the life that God calls you to live, just remember that Jesus is pretty good at, at giving makeovers, that he knows how to transform you. If you are spiritually broken, emotionally a mess, if you are physically tempted in different ways, if you struggle with addiction, if you struggle with anger, if you struggle with the stubbornness of your heart, if you struggle with laziness, any form of sin, and at times we feel really defeated, right, because these are real realities that exist in our lives. At some point we feel like we can't change, even through the grace of God. At some point we feel like, man, I'm, I'm too big of a mess, like, I, 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 I failed too many times. And yet what the Bible reminds us is, is this, that God, his grace is sufficient. It is pretty powerful. It can transform your life. Now, when I think about transformation in the gospel, there's one friend that I always think of. Um, she was someone I knew uh, in, in youth group when I was in high school. She was that one person in the youth group that no one wanted to talk to because she was so scary. Like she had, she like she had this 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 dark presence around her, literally a cloud on her on her uh, on top of her, her head. Like her her face was never smiling, always dark. You knew that she she didn't want to be there. She was basically there because of her parents, like because she had no other option. 
And, and because she was so hostile against like, Christians and the idea of Christianity, the teachings of the Bible, every opportunity that she had, she would speak against Christianity. And I was like, okay, everyone was like, okay, let's keep our distance from this girl. And I was personally thinking, man, God, your grace is great, but I have no idea how you're going to change a life like this. Maybe this person is the one person that's outside of your grace. Um, and that's how bad I felt like, you know, this person was living, you know, in, 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 in sin. Um, but later down the road, I go to college, and then um, I get to visit my home church um, during the summer. And someone comes up to me and says hello to me. And it's this girl, and, and, and says, yeah, hey, how have you been? And I'm like, wait, do I know you? And it happened to be that same girl. And I was like, what happened to you? Because your face is different. It, I'm not talking about your, your manner or the way that you talk. You're a different person. I almost did not recognize you. And it's not because she had plastic surgery. Like, something was absolutely different ab- about her. Instead of darkness in her face, there was a sense of peace. Instead of uh, just sadness, there was a sense of joy. And what she was sharing is, well, I, I met Jesus. So that's all she said. I finally realized that I was a broken sinner and in need of a savior. And, and because what happened was during college, she was such a mess that her parents actually sent her to a place um, to do, um, uh, it's called Discipleship Training School at YWAM. And so she did a DTS and for about three months, you don't have a phone, you're basically living in a community of believers and, and you're just there. And what happened through those three months, she encountered God in such a powerful way, her life was never the same. And that's when I've, I had to repent for my own sins, for being so judgmental, so for limiting God's grace in such a way. What we see time after time, that although our sinfulness is quite deep, God's grace is, is greater. It's, it runs deeper. It is far more powerful than what you can ever imagine. So never underestimate what God can do in your life and in someone else's life. But look at the after. It says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, if you go just a couple of verses earlier in verse 4, it gives you really an incredible picture of what it looks like to be saved by God. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in our sin, he had made us alive together with Christ. So we were once dead in our sin. The Bible says we are made alive with Jesus Christ. We were once lost, but now we are saved. We were once really, you know, under the, the power of sin and death. And, and yet in verse 6, it says we are raised uh, with Jesus, seated at the heavenly places. And so you have this incredible picture of a, an, a, a radical makeover, how God turns this, our lives around completely with the power of the gospel. But here's something that's really interesting. In this makeover, God not only transforms you personally, but he transforms the community that you belong to. It says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice that Paul, he turns from saying you into we. Now he's talking about we, a multiple group of people. It says in verse 15, By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. So here's what's going on. In the church of Ephesus, there were groups uh, that, who belonged to the traditions of, of Judaism, and also there were Gentiles who, were, who, who believed in Jesus, and, but yet they didn't have any roots um, when it comes to their knowledge of the Old Testament or the traditions like circumcision or different things. And there's a big fight 
in the church of Ephesus. Because the Jewish Christians, they believe that, okay, in order for you to be a legit Christian, you have to follow our traditions. You guys, uh, you have to um, go through all the things that we have did as, as Jews. And yet, the Gentiles are like, no, no, that's, that's not true. It's by faith that we are saved. So there is this enmity that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. And to this problem within the church, Paul is speaking. There's two groups in verse 14. Who God has made us both one. Although we are two, God has made us one. He broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jews hated the Gentiles. They felt like Gentiles could never be part of God's covenant promise. The Gentiles thought that Jews were arrogant, prideful, and so they didn't like the Jews. And yet, what the Bible says in verse 15 is, God, through Jesus Christ, created in himself one new man in place of two. So there exists two different groups. Now there's one new man. So here's what we learn. When God saves you, Not only do you have a new relationship with the Father because you who were once alienated and far off, you're brought closer. You have a new relationship with the Father, but you also have a new relationship with other people, other fellow Christians. That's just part of the gospel. It says in verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The reason why we are able to lay down our differences, the reason why Jews and Gentiles can coexist within the same church, the reason why right and left can coexist, Republican, Democrats can coexist within the church, people of different races can coexist within the church, people of different age groups can coexist in the same church, is because Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the dividing wall that exists between God and man so that we can be brought closer to God. But at the same time, he also divided, uh, destroyed the dividing wall of hostility that exists between mankind. And so not only are we reconciled to God, we are reconciled to one another. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make, that within the church there is great unity because of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes us one. We look different, we come from different backgrounds, we think differently, but because we have this common belief in Jesus Christ, because we are saved by the same grace through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we are able to unite as one. And this is not an afterthought, but this is something that God intended from the very beginning. This was the purpose of the cross. Now, a lot of us, we take a very individualistic approach when it comes to understanding the cross and what it does. We say, well, through the cross, God saves me. Yes, it does. But listen to the words of Jesus. In John 17, verse 20, this is before he goes to the cross. He says this, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. For those who would come later on to follow Jesus through the words of the disciples, which includes us. In verse 21, it says that they may all be one. So the desire of Jesus is not just for us to be saved. But it says, my desire is that all who follow me, that they will be all one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So Jesus says, I want them to be one with one another because they are one with us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So it's a big deal that the church exists in unity. When we love one another in a radical way that's different from the world, 
it's not just people inside the church, but people outside of the church, they're going to notice the difference. They're going to realize that something is different about the church. Notice that Jesus, from the very beginning, he had the church in mind even before he went to the cross. The church is not a divine afterthought. The church was the foundational plan of God from the very beginning. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes us one. As much as we are thankful for God's grace that he saves us individually, we are also thankful by God's grace that we are brought together collectively and that we have the grace to be part of God's church. And in the following, Paul gives us three pictures, clear pictures of what church should be like. It says in verse 19, so then, now if you understand all this, all that the gospel has done to break down the walls between you and God and, and between you and fellow brothers and sisters, it says in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, foreigners, but you are fellow citizens. So the first picture that we get is that if you are a believer and if you are part of the church, you are a fellow citizen of God's kingdom. So citizens of God's kingdom, that's how the Bible describes the church. And what does it mean to be a citizen of a kingdom or a place? Well, it means that you follow the same laws as other citizens. Especially in a kingdom, it means that you serve the same king. It means that you have the same standards. Um, it means that you are, are, have this, share the same responsibilities. In the same way as us being part of the church, believers, we share same standards, same laws, same responsibility. Our allegiance belongs to our King, Jesus Christ, and we can unite under these common causes. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is good news, especially uh, for people who are living in the first century when having a Roman citizenship was really the ultimate prize. It was the trump card. It was something that would allow you to have all these privileges the Bible tells us that there's something better than being a citizen of, of the Roman Empire. There's something better than being a citizen of the United States of America. It's being a citizen of the kingdom of God. And how do we become a, a citizen of God's kingdom? The Bible says it is through God's grace, through Jesus Christ. But notice, the next step is this. When you believe in Jesus, not only do you become part of this country with other people, but you are adopted into God's family. The second thing that we see is this. Not only are you citizens of God's kingdom, you are, you are members of God's household. You are members of God's household. Did you know that the most common way that Christians are addressed in the New Testament, it's not disciples. It's not the word Christians. It's not the word believers. The most common way Christians are addressed in the New Testament is actually brother and sister. It's the idea of family that runs through the New Testament. And that's why we always call each other, you know, brother and sister. Now, some of us, we use that word when we don't know the other person's name. It's like, hey, brother, you know, hey, sister. <laughs> or some of us, we use it when we try to draw the line. If someone shows interest in you romantically and is like, oh, you're just a brother to me. Oh, you're just a sister to me. It means that we have this distance that you cannot <laughs> invade. But what the Bible tells us is this. No, like being a brother and sister is one of the great privileges that we get to enjoy in God's family. Uh, I mean, we have different moms, um, earthly dads, but uh, we all come from the same Heavenly Father. If you are in Christ, God is your Father. Therefore, those believers are your fellow brothers and sisters. 
And so I wouldn't get offended if someone calls me, hey, bro, you know, hey, brother. Like, I love that expression. I, I wish more people would do that uh, for me. Uh, and because I think there's nothing that, that, that shows intimacy and, and, and just shows how personal you can be than the word brother and sister. But this also means that sometimes, man, our brothers and sisters can get on our nerves, right? Isn't this the reason why we don't get excited when we hear the word church is a family? It's because we, there's so much mess and brokenness in our family, so much drama in our family. When we think about church being a family, it's like, man, another family to take care of. But notice that in this family, we have our God as our Heavenly Father, and He keeps things in order. Uh, we also have Jesus Christ, who is able to model uh, how to be a good son and daughter. He is the, eldest, the oldest uh, son that sets the example. And so being part of a church, it means that at times we can get on each other's nerves. At the same time, it means that we don't give up on each other. We wish the best of one another. Now, if you are simply strangers, fellow citizens, you wouldn't go your way um, to, to maybe confront someone if they're living in sin, to, to care for them if they're broken. And yet, what you see is in this heavenly family, in the family of God, you're willing to go the extra mile to show love and care. And I think this is so true. Um, uh, for me personally, I love my earthly parents. I'm so grateful for them. But uh, one thing that, that uh, I always share is, uh, although um, they went to church, in my household, we never talked about God. Um, and that, I, I thought that was normal in, in every household, that you talk about church, uh, at, 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 you talk about God at church, and then when you come home, well, you just talk about life. And, and because of that, you know, not once have I thought, you know, about my personal sin, about who God is and what it means uh, to me, until I met a great mentor in, in high school. Um, he happened to be my youth pastor. And and he took the time to, first of all, feed me great food, uh, but also to disciple me, to share God's word and to explain to me, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. And this is who God is. He is the ultimate ruler and also the creator. It also means that we are accountable to him, that we have a clear purpose in life. It also means that, you know, for every single one of us, we have an issue of sin because we, instead of following God's way, we all fall short of his glory and try to go our way. And that's a great problem because that means we are separated from God. But at the same time, there's hope in Jesus Christ. And so he walked me through the gospel. He explained to me what it means to be a true Christian. And I'm forever, forever grateful for that. My parents are actually forever grateful for him as well. Um, and, and, and so what happened was um, that person who had no business investing into a young teenage boy was willing to take the time because he understood that there is great value when you invest in God's family. Um, I think about my parents, and now they are up in age, and um, we, I get to see them in person maybe every two, three years, and I was speaking to them um, the last time they came, and I was thinking, man, I don't have a whole lot of time with you guys left. I can FaceTime a lot with you, but to see you guys in person, man, maybe 20 at max if at this rate, um, but if you think about it, we see each other every week. Some of us, we see each other quite, quite often, like, you know, multiple times in a week. And a lot of times when family can't be with you in your deep, in your darkest moments, in the moments that you're struggling, the church family is with you. The moments where you are expressing joy and sharing joy, like, I think your church family is with you. Yes, God does amazing things to our earthly family. But at the same time, 
he also does amazing things, even greater things to the church family. And that's something that is communicated in today's passage, that church is a family. It's not just a gathering of people. It's not just an event that you attend from time to time. You belong to a family, the family of God. The third thing that we see about church is this. Um, church, uh, as, as members of the church, we are stones of God's temple. So citizens of God's kingdom and family members of God's household and then stones of God's temple. Look at verse 21. It says this, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So notice the word temple in verse 21. You are being built, joined together as the holy temple. What is the holy temple? It's talking about the temple in the Old Testament where the temple was a symbol uh, that exists in Jerusalem, a symbol of God's presence. It was a sign that God, he was dwelling among his people. So the tabernacle or the temple was a sign that God was with his people in the same way. The church is a place where we should see God's presence in a very tangible way. We should experience God's love and his care throughout uh, our relationships with each other. We should be able to really understand who God is at this place. Every person who comes into these uh, our, our meetings and comes through those double doors, they should be able to experience God's presence in a very real way. At the same time, the temple exists to declare God's glory internally exists to remind people of God's presence, externally exists to declare God's glory so that the nations would see that there's no God like God, that Yahweh is the one and only true God. That was the purpose of the temple. And in the same way, our purpose as God's temple is to reflect God's glory. It's to let the world know that there's no place like God's home and there's no God like our God. That's the function of the church. We exist to, to reflect God's glory and to share God's glory to others. So we are stones in God's temple, which means that individual stones that are set apart from God's temple, there is no use for that. That we have to be built with one another, like we have to be connected to one another. And that's why it says in verse, verse 20, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So in this building, in the temple of God that is made up with um, living stones, really, uh, Christians, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets, their teaching. In other words, it's the word of God. Now, a lot of people, they would say that the way that you live in harmony and unity is if you lay down your opinions and your thoughts, you can live in harmony. Uh, isn't that what our society would tell us? Regardless of what you think about um, what the world should be or how you should raise children, if you want to get along with other people, just don't voice your opinion. Kind of try to respect one another. Don't voice one another. Like just let everyone be them themselves. And we feel like that creates harmony. But I think that creates more confusion. What the Bible tells us is this. We don't just like each other or try to get along with each other. It's not like you're on this road, long road trip and somehow you're stuck with brothers and sisters. And God is telling you, hey, just be nice to each other. Hey, just get along with each other. He's not just forcing us to get along, but there are specific truths that we rally around. There are specific things that we hold together. This is very countercultural because the culture would say that you have to lay down what you believe that is true in order to live in harmony. The Bible says, no, actually, if you want true harmony and unity in the midst of diversity, you have to have specific truth that you hold together, that these things cannot be shaken. 
So there are certain truths that we rally together. So to be part of the church means that you believe in a common Savior, but also you have a common commitment to the word of God. Now, one time I was in uh, Mosaic, and there was a, a person who came up to me and said, oh, do you go to church? And said, yeah, I do go to church. And then it's like, oh, you're a fellow brother then. And then, you know, the conversation is going on. And later on, I asked the question, well, which, which church do you go to? And the person says, World Mission Society Church of God. Uh, and we love that God is our father and also our mother. And, and so immediately, that's why I say, oh, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Uh, I don't, I don't think we're brothers, <laughs> because not, just because we call ourselves Christians doesn't mean we're part of the same family, because over and over again, the Bible tells us that Christians are not just united, they're united around certain beliefs. Ephesians 4, 3 says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, notice it doesn't say we create unity, that we have to force-feed unity in our, uh, in, our, in our gatherings because God himself created unity for the church through Jesus Christ. But it says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, and we are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one Savior, and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God's word allows us to see things um, in the same way. It, it unites us in the same truth. And so we need to devote ourselves to the same truth, devoting ourselves to scripture. Scripture has ultimate authority, especially at Shining Star. It's not about my voice or someone else's voice. As long as we are preaching from God's word and we're all aligned to God's word, there is automatic unity that exists within our body. But the second thing that we see is this. In order to achieve this type of unity, we need prayer that we really need to devote ourselves to prayer. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says this, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, speaking of the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, speaking of the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We said that church is a family where God is the Father. But how do we gain access to this family? It is through him, Jesus Christ, in one spirit. And so apart from the Spirit, it is impossible for us to maintain this unity. It is the Spirit of God that allows us to lay down our differences, to lay down our values and our opinions, and to embrace the truth in God's Word. It is the Spirit of God that allows us to be kind and generous towards one another. And this is why the Spirit of God is so essential to the, 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 the church. We see in Acts 2 that the Spirit of God comes upon the believers. And the first thing that we see is through the Spirit of God, people are saved. The second thing that we see is through the Spirit of God, the church is born. The reason why a lot of times we struggle with the idea of church is this. We try to invest in this organization without the power of God and the Spirit of God. We just treat it just like any other organization that we belong to. We try to be kind to one another, understand one another, and if it doesn't work out, we'll go to the next church. We rely on our own experience and our own character rather than the Spirit of God. And that's something that I had to repent of. Um, you know, a lot of times as, as I'm leading um, the congregation, I'm praying, you know, God, in what way can we grow in our maturity? In what way can we grow in our unity? Um, and I'm thinking about different programs, different curriculums, different strategies. I'm studying other churches and what do they need? What kind of structure works for them? At the end of the day, the Bible tells us that if you have the spirit of God and the word of God, 
then you should be able to have a healthy church. And that's all that you really need. Everything else comes out of those works. So devote yourself, first of all, to prayer. And I think, you know, as much as we love our church, we need to understand that it is by grace that we can maintain this unity. So we need to devote ourselves in prayer because you and me, by nature, we are selfish beings. We are self-centered beings. Living in this loving community in harmony is not part of our nature. And that's why we need to pray constantly. We need to give ourselves to God's word, and we need to align our values to God's values in order to embrace this beautiful reality of unity that exists in the body of Christ. So we devote ourselves to to Jesus Christ. We devote ourselves to scripture, and we devote ourselves to prayer. And this is why in Acts chapter 2, we see the moment that 3,000 people are saved, the next verse it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the Bible says, day after day, God added to their number. And it's not about growing in size. I think you see a healthy picture of growth where they're growing in their maturity and in their love for one another. So how do we apply a text like this? Uh, I just want to throw out a couple application points. Number one is this. Um, Let's take church seriously. If this was part of God's plan from the very beginning, if church is something that we get to experience, it's a gift from God by his grace, just as salvation is a gift that we get to enjoy, if church is that gift, then let's enjoy that gift in the right way. Let's give ourselves to the church. This means that, that there's a greater commitment that, that is required. You can't just attend church, but you have to belong to the church. If you want to be a family member of God's household, if you want to be part of the building, that means you have to lay down your personal time in order to invest in one another. There are some people who believe that they can be a, a lone ranger Christian, that uh, as long as they have the Holy Spirit and God's word, they can, they're good, they can do everything online, or they can have enough to, to live a happy life. Um, if you notice, it is really easy to live as a single Christian. You don't, you don't have to love anyone else. Uh, the great commandment is to love God, love one another. Well, all you have to do is get rid of the second part because there's no one around you, no one to love. But the problem is it's easy to be like that, but you'll never grow in your maturity as a Christian. You'll never be shaped uh, and, 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 and refined in such a way where you would be the man and the woman that God calls you to be. So give yourself to the church. Don't be a lone ranger, and don't be a ninja Christian where you are secretly coming into this body and then secretly going out. <laughs> right? uh, just make yourself known. We would love to get to know you. Uh, and I think people here have to do a better job making people feel, feel more welcome, more loved, that we have to display that kind of um, love and care for one another. No, Jesus died for the church. That's not an overstatement. The price of his blood was the price of the birth of the church. And he saved people for the purpose to gather people for himself, for his namesake, so that his glory can be made known among the earth. Now, some people ask the question, why doesn't God just display something in heavens or some supernatural way so that every single person on earth can see his glory and understand his grace and come to know the gospel? The answer to that problem is quite simple. You're the solution. I'm the solution. God said the church is the very place where the manifold wisdom of God will be displayed to the rulers and the authorities. It is through the church that God has the plan to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. Instead of us saying, why, God, don't you do your job? We have to understand the mission that was given to us. 
Go make disciples for all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I've commanded you. And the great promise is that not only is God with us, Jesus with us, that his authority is with us, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. If church is this, 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 this powerful force, then even hell cannot prevail against it. Shouldn't we have a bigger view of church and a bigger view of what God can do through us? So be part of the church. Make yourself available to what's going on here. Make yourself a citizen of God's kingdom. Be part of the church family. Invest as a, a, a stone of the temple. And let's be committed to one another. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Jones, he's a great preacher. He writes in his book, Spiritual Depression, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. In other words, the reason why so many people are, 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 are hesitant to come to church is because it seems like Christians are un, unhappy and the church is joyless. How, how much joy do we have when we gather? Are you guys excited when you come to see each other, that you get to be with your fellow brothers and sisters, that you get, get to grow together in God's word, that you get to pray with one another, that you get to, get to sharpen one another, that we get to recharge and be equipped with God's word so that we can go out to the world and be the church that we're called to be? Or is it more of a burden? I think the reason why we tend to view it more as a burden is because we view church as something that we have to do rather than a privilege that we get to uh, have uh, through God's grace. So let's pray that God will restore the joy in our hearts for his gospel, but also for his church. Let's have a greater sense of gratitude for one another. These are the people that God allows us to have in this family and trusting in our Father. We love on each other and we hope to grow with one another. Um, let's be the church that God called to be us to be. Amen. Let's pray.